Uh, Calvin and Shelley serve under SIM, used to be Sudan Interior Mission, which happens to be the mission my parents were with in Nigeria, where I was born. Um, but uh, so we're happy uh, that that mission is still going, and it's spread not just in Africa, but other countries. But anyway, um, both Calvin and Shelley were born to missionary parents. Um, Calvin's parents and grandparents have been supported by our church over the years. So that's a third generation that we've had the privilege of, of supporting and are faithful in continuing the ministry um, to people in need in Africa. Uh, just briefly, um, uh, Calvin and Shelley were married in 1991 and served a year and a half in northern Namibia, uh, which is in West Africa, kind of southern Africa. Um, and they served almost 11 years in Angola, Africa. And during this time, God blessed them with two daughters, uh, Charity and Carissa. Um, and for most of their time in Africa, Calvin served as a Bible teacher, a builder, and consultant for Bible translation. Um, God has provided a ministry to write and produce books primarily in the Luchazi language uh, that Calvin mentioned uh, this morning, it's used in Angola, Zambia, and Namibia. Most of these books are tools for ministry for the, the pastors and other church leaders. And uh, Shelley had her own ministry too with not only teaching the, the girls and, and uh, uh, also ministry to the wives of Bible Institute students. Uh, in 2005, they left Angola and returned to the United States with the intent of a year's home assignment before returning to Africa. But the plan was to settle in Namibia to carry on the ministry in the Luchazi language to the people there and be closer to the uh, educational opportunities for their family. Uh, well, however, that they were never granted a work visa, which they would have needed to actually go there and, and stay and minister. Um, so after waiting for two years, it was time to ch change their ministry, their focus a little bit. And uh, so a new ministry was launched uh, for Namibian pastors. It's the Pastor's Book Set Ministry. And uh, it's been uh, over 10 years. This is, the Lord has really blessed this ministry, supplying the financial needs and all, get the the Bibles and other uh, Bible study books and so on to these pastors. It was amazing to hear how that's happened. So uh, I don't want to take any more of Calvin's time, but uh, welcome, Calvin, wherever you are. And <laughs> come and minister to us, and welcome, Shelley, as well. Thank you. I think... Thank you for the cold reception to Michigan. <laughs> I, uh, neither my wife or I have had the privilege of meeting your pastor, but um, I've discovered I have a few things in common with him, and uh, some will be affirming and some I'm walking on thin ice, but I've been known to do that before. But he loves the Bible, and he loves books, and I discovered this morning he loves booms. There's something else you have in common. Uh, you probably don't know this. Neither did my father when he gave me the name Calvin. Calvin means the bald one. And so I'm on thin ice now. I know. I sense the tension. Yeah. Um, for those of you who don't know, uh, the people who are bald on the front, they are the thinkers. The people who are bald in the back, they are the lovers. And those who are bald from front to back just think they're lovers. <laughs> Sometime before you were incorporated, I believe it was 1917, a man from Maine went to Angola. His name was Bailey. He almost died three years into his ministry, 
and the people that he had led to the Lord in those few years decided that uh, he was worth praying for. And so they prayed and prayed and prayed through the night, through the next day. And he miraculously recovered from malaria, not having anything to take at that stage in history. That man, Bailey, came back in 1921, two years after you incorporated as a church, I believe. And he raised up a team of missionaries. He went back with 11 missionaries. Some of them died a few years after. Some of them buried their children during the time they were there. But the need and the commitment in the ministry was such that he came back again to the U.S. in 1925-1926. He raised up another team of missionaries. Among those missionaries were my grandparents. And um, they went to Angola with a little boy named Robert. And Robert is my father. He was nine months at the time. They trekked several thousand miles. My grandfather was uh, quite handy, so he made a box into which he placed his nine-month-old son, and he would play with his little cars inside this box as uh, one of the Angolans had two poles on his shoulders across the box to another Angolan man with two things on his shoulders, and they carried him my father, several thousand miles into where, or several hundred miles where they were to work. That was the beginning, the infant start of that part of God's work in that country. You have been part of it somewhere along the line, maybe the 30s. I, I don't know exactly the date, but you began supporting my grandparents. And then you began in 1948, 1949 to support my father when he was in seminary. You continued supporting my father after he married my mother in 1953. You continued supporting my parents when I was born in the early 60s. And then when my wife and I, also called by God to go to Angola, you began supporting us in 1993. We stand on your shoulders. That little piece of ministry that began with that maniac from Maine, the missionaries that God gathered around him, my grandparents included, began to grow. Two people have said to me this morning, I don't think they intended to say it, but they used these words, we are just a small church. I appreciate the humility, but you don't understand your impact. This church has been part of Angolan ministry for collectively over a hundred years through three generations of missionaries. What started as a few faithful men who prayed for that maniac to recover in 19, uh, sorry, 2014, that same church that was spawned by those few men, nurtured by people like my grandfather, by my father, by my wife and I, has grown from just a few to over a thousand churches and somewhere between 150 and 200,000 believers. Yes, you are small, but you have had an impact. Can you imagine sitting around in heaven and drinking coffee with 200,000 people one at a time to hear the stories of the faithfulness, the impact of what you multiple generations over have had on Angola? None of you have been there. Maybe... During the, the millennium, you'll go there. I don't know. Answer the call. So many have. What in the heck does it mean? That's the theme for this time. The Christian life has always been learning to follow and following to learn. That's just the nature. One of the disciples of my father, who became a colleague of mine for several years in Angola, was a man by the name of Isaac Mateus. Isaac Mateus was a faithful pastor. He was suddenly caught by one of the groups fighting 
the government. And he was taken into custody and forced to do whatever he was forced to do. And as he gained an understanding of where he was and what was happening, he and his wife decided secretly that they were going to run away. And so one night they packed up what they had, which was very little. They could carry it. They took, I believe, two children at the time that were little, and they literally disappeared into the Angolan woods in the eastern part of the country to walk into Zambia, hundreds of miles away. They walked and walked generally early in the morning while it was still dark, at dusk, trying to escape anybody's notice, knowing that there were friendlies out there and they were un there were unfriendlies out there. And at one point, they came to a place. They knew danger was all around them, and not just danger of people who could capture them and bring them back into forced labor, but also landmines, bombs, all sorts of things. And so not knowing where they were, they knelt down and they prayed. And they committed their way to the Lord. Lord, we don't know where we are. We don't know where we need to go, which direction we need to walk, what is safe, what is not. Please lead us. They left their knees. They looked around, fully expectant that God would answer their prayer. Off in the distance, they saw a man. And they didn't find it strange, but the man was dressed in white. And he beckoned them. And then he said this. As they walked towards him, he began walking. If they walked faster, he would walk faster. If they walked slower, he would walk slower. He never let them get too close. He walked them for what seemed like a long time through the forest, and he came to an open field, and then he stopped, and he indicated. And they understood that to mean we need to walk in his footsteps. And so he started across, leaving the forest out over this open field, and he didn't walk in a straight line. He would walk this way, and sometimes he'd take a short step, and sometimes he'd take a really big step, and he kept pointing, never said a word. And they took it to mean we need to step exactly where he steps. They walked across this large field, zigzagging here, there, big steps, little steps, left, right, straight, whatever it took, always stepping where he stepped. Come to the edge of the field, the forest began again, and he disappeared around a clump of trees. They thought, okay, we're going to see him. They walked around, and they couldn't see him. Gone. So they prayed. They thanked the Lord's protection for his leadership, for his direction. And they decided, we just need to keep walking the direction he walked when he left us. They walked for a little bit more. Suddenly, they heard voices. Isaac Mateus, the man, said, just sit here, hide. I'm going to go see if these people are friendly or not. He went a little bit further. He crouched down. He listened. He, over the course of about a half an hour, concluded that these people were safe. He went back to get his wife and walked into the village. He told me that story as evidence of God's faithfulness, God's calling him, and God's protecting him. Maybe your story is not quite so dramatic. You've never let, been led by possibly an angel across a minefield. You've never had to zigzag through what could instantly blow your leg off or send you into eternity. And maybe for that reason you think, God hasn't called me. Who am I? I'm just a little church or a little piece of a little church. Answer the call. Let's just kind of think about that. When you think of answering the call, stop. Somebody is actually calling. When the phone rings, there's somebody at the other end. The someone has a reason for calling. Perhaps an expression of affection. Perhaps a request. Perhaps just a talk. That someone called you with a desire, with a purpose. They didn't just dial your number and want to let it vibrate. They expect you to pick up. They want a response. When you consider the word answer, the call, is it a passive? Hello? 
Or is it inactive, ready, waiting? When you pick up your phone, when there's a call, you recognize sometimes the voice at the other end. My sheep hear my voice. They listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me, Jesus said. Would you agree with this statement? The more important the person doing the calling, the more important it is to answer. So if some unknown telemarketer dials your number, thumbs down. If you see on your phone, State Department, who's that? White House, Washington, D.C. Let's pray. Dear Father, kindly speak to us. Make your way clear to us. Teach us to respond as your sheep who hear your voice. Lord, we know from the Bible that you often call ordinary people in ordinary ways to do extraordinary things. Lord, we're your children. Teach us to hear your voice, to remain responsive and humble of heart. And like that old hymn, like a shepherd lead us, Father, much we need your tender care. Lord, increase our ability to recognize your voice, to deeply desire to learn to follow, and the humility to follow to learn. Amen. I think you would agree. A call comes with words. There's something of meaning, of information that has to get transmitted. It is by words that we recognize there's a call. It is by the sound of the voice, using the words, that we recognize who is called. It is the words we discern and their nature that create a sense of urgency to respond. It is by the words of our hearts and our minds that we concoct an answer. So calls are all about words. Now, if calls are constructed by words, not all words are created equal, right? There's various calls, just like there's various words. In fact, if we in broad brushstrokes were to look through Scripture, we would, I believe, be able to identify very clearly two calls. Maybe we could say two words. There is a general call to all of us. Calls like whosoever will may come. For God so loved the world that he gave that whosoever believes. Be holy, even as I am holy. Discipleship, prayer, giving, worship. Those are calls for all of us across the board. But there's also this complete preoccupation with an individual word for an individual person for a specific So we have a general call and a really specific call. You remember Noah? Noah had both of these. He gets a word from the Lord. Hey, there's a flood coming. Who is that for? Everybody. And then he gets another word. Hey, by the way, build your ark. Put your family in it. That's a specific word. An individual word for a time. And so he began slugging it away working on this ark. Now, maybe what you didn't notice is God said, this ark is for you and your family. Remember that. We'll come back to it. But his wife was barren. They had been married for somewhere close to 500 years. She didn't have a child yet. He began working on the ark. 20 years later, his first son was born. But God said, this is for you and your family. 
So if we were again to look through the scriptures, we would find that God speaks generally, collectively, whosoever will, but he also speaks specifically, individually, personally. Sometimes we wish he would speak to us more specifically, more individually. But sometimes there's long lapses of time from the time God last spoke until God will speak again. Noah, it appears. The first man to be called in the Bible got a word from the Lord. And it was probably 120 years later that he heard again from the Lord. Would you be faithful for 120 years? Think of the permits that he had to get from the local municipality to build an ark in his backyard. Think what explanation he had to give to his neighbors. You're building a what? So when you think about answering the call, we find ourselves desiring God to call us more frequently sometimes. And my computer just died. Here we go. Maybe that wasn't what God wanted me to say anyways. All right, Lord, help. We desire so much that God speaks to us. We hear stories of God wanting to do great things. And we hear stories in a church like this with missions that God is doing great things the world over. And it intrigues us. It captivates us. It captures our attention. The hour goes by fast. How does that happen? How do we move from all of God's general call and all of the scripture and learn to receive those individual calls? The little words that teach you what you need to do from moment to moment. Where you actually hear and listen the still small voice of God speaking to you and saying, this is the way, walk in it. There's something inside of all of us, I believe, that desires that kind of intimacy, that kind of closeness with God, that he just downloads. We receive the email. We get the memo. We see the sign. I have a friend. His name is Kevin. He showed up in Angola. He's a guy who grew up in New York, ended up in Texas, got mixed up with drugs, ended in jail. Somebody gave him a Bible. He began reading the Bible. He soundly was saved, began consuming the Bible just day and night, reading it. Of all of the people I know, and I know a lot of people and a lot of pastors, and I've been to colleges, and I've been to seminary, and I mix with people like this really nice guy down here. I have not met anybody who knows more about the Bible than my friend Kevin. And he's never been to Bible college. He's never taken a class at all. Now, I'm not saying don't go to Bible college. Don't get me wrong. But Kevin has this hunger for God that is refreshing. And I'm always challenged by him. He's the kind of guy who will wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning, open his Bible, begin to read where he left off the day before, and God speaks to him. And he sees connections. And he sees patterns. And somewhere along the next two and a half or three hours that he spends with the Lord almost every day, God says things to him, oh, not every day, but periodically, Kevin, I want you to go to the market today on the other side of Menonga where Callan and Shelley live. And when you go, there's going to be a road that goes off to your right. I want you to go down that road. You'll know which one it is. When you get there, I'll tell you. And when you get down to the end of the street, you'll see down at the end of the street, you'll see a house with a man standing next to the door. I want you to go talk to him about me. Don't be afraid. Don't be anxious. I'll tell you what to say to him. And Kevin wakes up. And he goes to the market. And he sees the road. And there's this... this this is the road. And he walks down and he sees the guy standing by the door. And wonder of wonders, he leads the guy to the Lord. What a concept. 
we took him for a picnic one time. And, and Kevin was with us, and this was in Angola, and we were throwing our two little girls into this uh, little stream, and we were all laughing and giggling and carrying on and skipping stones and just having a great time. And Kevin was just there having fun, laughing, and then he suddenly disappeared, and I didn't know where he went. Talked to him later, and he said, well, as we were playing, I saw two men off in the distance. I just began thinking about them and praying for them, wondering if they knew the Lord. And God said, go, you need to talk to those guys. As he walked to the guys, the Lord said, they have the same problem you did. They're alcoholics. You need to talk to them. Well, wonder of wonders, 20 minutes later, he leads them to the Lord. Oh, here we go, getting wired up again. So, Kevin is like that. Oh, how I wish I was more like that. But there is a way to cultivate that in our lives. There is a way to take what God has said. Thank you, brother. Over on the side. We'll see if she starts up again. It's okay. It's just a dumb lover. <laughs> he knows how to capture the moment, doesn't he? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So... Kevin is like that, and he's just uncanny. God speaks to him. Not every day. Sometimes a couple weeks go by, God says nothing, but then God speaks to him. So how do we cultivate that walk with the Lord? It's not, ooh. It's not, oh, that's what the charismatics do. Maybe. But that's what we Christians need to do. That's what God intended. He doesn't want for you to remain arm's length, distant. No, God is somebody else's friend. No. He told his disciples, I have chosen you. Not so you can be my servants, my slaves, so you can be my friend. What do you do with your best friend? Do you hold him at arm's length? No, you regularly embrace him. His concerns become your concerns. His desires become your desires. When you hurt, he hurts. When he hurts, you hurt. Isn't that what God intended? I believe so. And there's a journey over and over again in the lives of the people of God in Scripture where they transition to this general from this general call to this intimacy. Abraham, he's off in some country. He's a moon worshiper. We'll get to that if we have time. He's a moon worshiper. He, he's following foreign, false gods. And God rattles his cage a bit. And he says, leave your family. Really important. Take your family, really important, and go to where I will lead you. You don't know where you're going. Just pack your bags and start moving. I'll show you where you're going. See, it's not just Kevin. It's Abraham, too. It's in Scripture. Why is the concept so foreign to us? Jesus would spend nights in prayer. God would speak to him and show him, hey, listen, I want you to choose Judas. What? Peter, yeah, I get him. Judas, you sure? You know, I don't think he spent the whole night in prayer arguing with his father about Peter. I think he may have had something to say about Judas. He struggled with it. It's okay to struggle with God. That's what you do with your friend, right? The tussle, the pull, the intimacy. But then Abraham... Because he walked with God. How did he walk with God? At a distance? No, he faithfully obeyed every general command until it started getting really personal. Abraham, I know you're really old, but it's time to get circumcised. <sighs> hey, you know, I get my kid. He's just a little guy. I'll circumcise him. But hey, I'm a husband. I'm an old man. What do I need circumcision for? It's really personal. 
But he was obedient even to that. Wonder of wonders. What does the God call him? God call him, I think it's four times in the Bible, the friend, the friend of God. Wow. Intimacy. Intimacy. But you know what happens? And I'm not even going to follow this anymore. You know what happens? Oh, talk about multiple generations. Abraham is this first generation believer, just all out for God. Oh, he, no, he threw his wife under the bus a couple of times, and you had his blunders. He messed up. But because of his desire to always push towards intimacy, even when God was going to do destructive things like Genesis 18, destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, we get this little glimpse. The heavens open up, and we overhear a conversation of the Trinity. It doesn't happen very often in Scripture. Fascinating. Every time we hear God talk to God. And God says, shall we tell are about to do? Why would God want to tell Abraham what he was about to do? Because Abraham was his friend. And so over the course of time, God reveals, he rolls out this carpet of what is going to happen, the good and the bad. He comes to the end of his life and he says, Abraham, you're going to die in peace. But your people are going to be a foreign, in a foreign country, enslaved. But at the fourth generation, they will return after the iniquity of the people of this country has been fulfilled. I know you've been studying Genesis. You read all about it a couple weeks ago. I want to draw your attention to Genesis 15. Genesis 15, God says, uh, get the animals, you know, kill them, slice them in half, lay them apart. Now, what was happening was the way you made an agreement, the way you made a contract is you killed the animals, you made a path between them, you walked between that path, and basically what you were saying is, we promise to do this, and if we don't, we're dead meat. That's Calvin's version, but that's basically what was happening. And so Abraham did what he was supposed to. He killed the animals, he cut the animals, he slaughtered them, he put them down in a path, made a path, sat there all day shaking the birds and trying to get them off this luscious meat that they were all just circling, waiting to devour. He became so tired and darkness came over him and he fell asleep. And that's when God showed up. God showed up and he walked through that meat and he torched it. That was the first barbecue in scripture. And basically he was saying, this is my job. What I promise, what I've called you to do, this is mine. It's not yours. I will accomplish what I seek to accomplish. Trust me. We always think of God's call as, I got to do it, I got to be trained, I got to know, I got to learn, I got to have, I got to resource. It's a carcass all around you. It's been torched. God has gone before you. He's prepared a dry place for you to walk. Step by step, follow him in obedience. The pharaohs of this world will lay in heaps. There's nothing that can stop you when God is on your side. It's not about you. You can't take on Pharaoh. But God certainly can. It's a done deal to him. It's not about you. And so all through scripture, we see these stories of God taking this general call and as people are faithful to follow what God said, generally, for all of them, they suddenly find themselves coming into greater and greater intimacy and getting specific words, details of what is going to happen. And God would give them what to say. God would tutor them through the process. God would nurture their desire for his person, for his work. 
Maybe we're thinking, no, th this is all narrative. You're just telling us stories and stringing them together. Well, actually, in Greek, there's two words for word. Okay, So every time you see the word word, W-O-R-D, in the word, B-I-B-L-E, in Greek, there's going to be one of two words that is translated word. And one is probably familiar to you. There's even a program called Logos, L-O-G-O-S. But there's another one that's less familiar to you, Rhema, R-H-E-M-A. Now, what is Logos and what is Rhema? Well, as you begin to look at these words in the New Testament, a very clear pattern begins to open up. Logos most frequently indicates points to God's general word. You're all familiar with John chapter 1. In the beginning was the, you will know what that is. That's logos. In the beginning was the word. And it's specifically referring to who? Jesus. Well, for whom is Jesus? He's for everybody. Not just Portage, Michigan, but also Angola. And Zambia, and Namibia, and the people who have pregnancies. It's for everyone. And yet, Christ also wants to be what? Your friend. And so we see this word, rhema, that keeps appearing. Now, we were talking about how there's these little vignettes all through Scripture where the windows of heaven, the curtains are pulled back, and we get to overhear a conversation of the Trinity. Now, the longest conversation of the Trinity that we're privy to in the Bible is John 17. Now, John Knox, may he rest in peace, was a theologian, I believe from Scotland, and he said that John 17 is like the holy of holies of the temple of Scripture. And he loved that so much that on his deathbed, he wanted somebody to read John 17 to him over and over and over again until he died. So what's happening in John 17? Well, John 13, 14, 15, 16... Jesus is talking to his disciples about God the Father and about God the Holy Spirit. And then he stops. And now he goes over here and he talks to the Father and to God the Holy Spirit about the disciples. And he begins to identify what he wants. He says, the glory that you and I have, I want them to see it and not just see it, but have it. The unity that you and I have, the oneness, I want them also to have that unity. What is that? Is it that friendship? Is it that intimacy? Is it that closeness? God is not some God who cranked out the world, wound the clock, and set it on the wall. He is intimately involved in our lives. He wants to speak to you and I. He wants you to speak to him and not just speak to him, listen to him. Oh, how we filled our lives with busyness and go, 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 go. Stop. Go a while away. Just listen. And you know, Sometimes God wants you to say something, and sometimes God wants you to be quiet. And we're so intent. Well, you know, if I'm a Christian, and, you know, pastor told me, and I'm a witness, and, you know, I've memorized John 3.16, I'm going to get out there and testify. Maybe you should stay home and pray. Reduce the times that you testify. Increase the times that you pray. So when you actually testify, you're not being led by your pride. You're not being led by your desire to, I've got to be faithful. 
but you're led by the Spirit of God to speak to the person and to say exactly what they need to hear. How much more would be accomplished for the kingdom of God if we followed God's way? You know, I think you have a Burger King somewhere here. And you know what the, the jingle is? Have it your way at Burger King. Well, is it really our way? No, we're not talking about whether you want mustard and mayonnaise on your burger. And don't get upset if they forgot your onions. The Christian life is not Burger King. Christ is the King of Kings. It's not your way. It's not my way. It's his way. How do we learn his way? By talking? No, by intimacy, quietness with him. Listening ever so carefully. And even when you're talking, being careful to listen. You know, prayer. You know, we love to hear certain people pray. And they, they just kind of connect all the thoughts. And it's, it's musical and it's harmonious and it's flowery. And it just... And then when we pray, it's like jumbled and... We don't know what to say, and especially in public, we go here, there, and everywhere, and we've got to write it down. And Why? I think, I think, maybe I even know if you and I just spent more time with Jesus and increased his friendship with us, it would just flow out. Maybe it wouldn't be flowery, but everybody. It's a for real prayer. You know, we are intent on testifying. And, you know, we work with non-Christians and we pray for the missionaries. And, you know, we go on missions trips and we give our money. And we're all about this. Well, what about quietness before God? If we actually gave less money but prayed that God would impact with it more, I struggle with this as much as you do. I listen as little as you do. I'm not a Kevin. I'd like to be. But how do we get to Kevinness? How do we get to Christ likeness? Where it's just normal to spend a night in prayer where it's just normal to converse like I do with my dad. Following the general call. Following that unrolled carpet from the VIP plane until it leads either to a limo or a Buick. Where will God's path lead you? I don't know. Maybe it will be to work with a pregnancy center. Maybe it will be to give to the pastor's book set. Maybe it will be to bake cookies for the neighbor down the street. How will you know? Have an ear to hear what the Spirit says to you, the church. That's how you'll know. It's not about me, a missionary, putting you on a guilt trip. You better answer the call. No. What is going on? You know, we have a passage that I wanted you to look at. And uh, in the last few minutes, I'd like to draw your attention to that passage. Turn with me to um, 1 Peter chapter 2. Now, just let me remind you, Peter was a guy who was just, Full of energy. He was an energizer bunny. He was a big, strong, burly fisherman. And he was always opening his mouth to exchange his feet. That was just his nature. And he would just blunder out. And, and God had 
words to rein him in, calm him down, harness his energy. And over time, as he learned to walk with God, he was so close to God. History tells us that when it came to be crucified, he insisted, do not crucify me like Jesus was crucified. I want to be crucified upside down. I am not worthy. But in the course of this, and this, this passage is just pregnant with connection to the rest of Scripture. We could spend weeks dissecting these few verses, looking at how they are connected to the rest of Scripture and the patterns they reflect. We don't have time for that. But this is what it says. Now, it's built on this phrase. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 1. To whom is this book written? Catch a load of this. Peter, an apostle, a sent one of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, that's you and me, this is not our home. Don't get used to it. We have a place being prepared for us. We're scattered all over throughout all these places. But look at the last phrase in the verse. Who are chosen? You didn't do anything to deserve it. You didn't do anything to earn it. But you and I were chosen. For what? Go back to chapter 2, verse 9. But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies, the excellencies of him who has called you. You don't have to try to conjure up being a goody two-shoes. And getting it all straight, you just have to proclaim the excellencies of the one who called you. How do the excellencies of the one who called you get accentuated in your thinking and shine out of your life? Because you walk intimately with your friend. You begin acting like him. You begin thinking like him. You begin speaking like him. How? Proximity. How? Family. How? Obeying all of those general things God says because what you really want is God himself. And then that glory that Jesus prayed for you to have in John 17, guess what? It begins. Remember Moses, you know, that guy that was called way back in the Old Testament? He didn't want to walk with God. He didn't want to obey God. He had every excuse in the book. And God, if God gets ticked off, God got ticked off. He said, Moses, that's it. You're the one. You don't want to talk? That's all right. We got that covered. Aaron, your brother's going to do the talking. But I'm going to speak to you. You speak to him. Over the course of time, from that resistance, he came to the point, show me your glory. If you don't go with me, we can't go. There's a desperate need for God. Send somebody else. Can't you find somebody else? Come on, I can't talk. From resistance to friendship. From distance to intimacy. Show me your glory. And so, over the course of time, up on the mountain, he goes up, and it says he talked with God. What a concept. And he didn't know it. 
But because he was so close with God, what happened? The glory of God just kind of shone through him. For you who are biologists and physicists and whoever you are, what does it take for the cells of the human body to emit light? That's what was happening. It says he was radiant. The light just came from him. He didn't know it until everybody... <gasps> It's really odd to have a person who walked with God. Ouch. Has it become a foreign concept to us? We go to church, we pray, we worship, but do we pour out, shine out the glory of God because of our intimacy? Oh, how God would long that the world would know him because like we read at the beginning of the service, let your light shine. I want to get myself in trouble here, but I've been known to do that before. Think with me. You all know a little bit about the solar system and how it works. There's this thing called the sun, the S-U-N. It never stops shining. It's always there. It never moves. You can count on it day in, day out for thousands of years. It's there. It's not going to go away anytime soon. God turned it on. God will turn it off. Nobody can explain where it's getting all its hydrogen, helium, whatever it's burning out there. It's just there. Ever-present, always shining, warmth, heat, life. Well, we're on this little thing called the earth. And it rotates. And sometimes we see the sun. And sometimes we're on the dark side of the earth and we can't see the sun. Sun didn't move. It didn't turn off. Somebody didn't hit the switch. Nobody's trying to conserve energy. It's there. It's shining, full strength, always. But we are on the dark side of the earth and we can't see it. Or can we? So we look up into the sky. What do we see? Well, we see the moon. This lunar thing suspended spinning around us. And if you, can, if you can picture this as the world and the pulpit is the sun and the sun is always there and sometimes we're back over here on this side and we're in the shadow of the earth and we can't see the sun. But we look up and we see the moon and the light of that sun shines on that moon and the light from the moon. It has no light of its own. It's not anything special. It's a bunch of lunar rock full of dust. But that moon, because the sun is so bright, shines now to the dark side of the earth. All right. You don't have any light. I don't have any light. But we're like the moon whose purpose it is to shine light of the sun, not the S-O-N, the S-U-N, to the dark side of the earth. Maybe your neighbor, maybe somebody in Angola, maybe the missionary on the other side of the earth. I don't know. God will lead you. Okay, I'm going to get in trouble. So in essence, what I'm saying is we all need to be moonies. Sorry, we need to be mooning people. We need to be shining the light of the S-O-N to the dark side of the earth. They can't see us. There's nothing special about us. We aren't all that great, but we can reflect on our lunar surface with all our grunge, the beauty, the glory of the S-O-N who's always there, always bright, always warm, always inviting. It will not go away. Are you with me? Father, we trust that you have encouraged us, given us hope, shed a little bit of yourself over us today. Lord, draw us into your heart, your purposes. Help us to dedicate our time, our talents, our treasures to your kingdom. Maybe 
we be always ready to hear, to listen to what your desire is. Keep us faithful. Remind us, Lord, of our need for you. Shepherd and guide. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Calvin. Let's uh, thank the Lord for the message we heard this morning. So quickly as we wrap up our missions conference, I know the hour is late, but there's just a couple things I want to share with you. If you have this little brochure that's in your material you received, I invite you to look at that quickly. And uh, in terms of our faith promise, uh, we've taken the last several weeks to collect these and uh, we'll collect them for the next uh, week or two, but uh, if you would faithfully consider with God what he would have you do in terms of answering this particular call, this general call that's going out, in terms of our particular missions conference. If you open it up, you'll see the, on the black flap that's still folded on the inside, it says, my faith promise is a commitment, is my opportunity to give by faith above my tithe for the cause of world evangelism. On the inside, it says, in dependence upon God, over the next year, I will endeavor to give the amount noted below to the missionary work of our church. And then there's an amount that you can insert there. And then how often you plan on giving. And then your age group would be great. Little tab to the right, uh, that's, you can put that amount in there, the same amount, and then keep that for your records as a reminder of what you committed to God. Uh, to support missions here at Oakwood. Now, it is amazing, and so I will throw this guilt trip out. We've been doing this for 100 years as a church, and boy, let's not stop now, right? So three people I want to talk to for just a second. If you're already supporting missionaries right now through Oakwood, that's great. We encourage you to put down the amount that you're already giving. Would you do that for us so we can have a record for the missions team to know what to expect so if you're already giving to support missionaries here, put uh, your amount in. If you're planning on increasing it a little bit, great. If you're going to decrease it, so be it. But just put that amount in so we have a record of it for our tabulation. Then it's possible that maybe you're tither. You support our ministry, which we're very thankful for. We have a lot of generous people here. We're very thankful. And maybe you've never given to missions. My encouragement is to do one of two things. Uh, tithe on your tithe. Uh, if you're given $100, then give 110 and throw 10 extra. And we have these brand new Oakwood Bible Church uh, envelopes that are in the pews. Actually, has a spot for missions on the bottom. Those are brand new to make sure we have missions included. The other thing you could do, if you don't want to give over and above, then take what you're giving normally to support our ministry and take 10% of that and give that as a, a tithe to missions, if you will. Uh, and then write that number down that you plan on giving to missions for the year. Then it's possible there's someone here who maybe you're newer to the church or haven't stepped over uh, to the desire to support the church financially. My encouragement is for you to do that. We, we'd invite you to partner with us as a ministry to touch the hearts and lives here in this community and around the world. And we'd encourage you to be, begin tithing. Um, maybe you're like, wow, oh, that's 10%. I, just, no, I can't get up there. Well, start at 1%. Start at something. Start moving. Do what you can. There's a lot of things that are going on here, whether it's youth ministry, children's ministry, uh, our counseling ministry. Um, there's a lot that's taking place here uh, to take care of people, love people. But then, again, if you begin giving, tithe off your tithe. We just encourage you and invite you to do that. And then record that. Then slip this in the box on your way out the door. All right. Y'all got that? You're all good? You're all groovy? Okay. Now, there's one thing I have to do before we dismiss today. Do we have any veterans in our mix who are here who served our country? Stand up, would you? Stand up if you're a veteran who served in the military, no matter what branch it is. Okay, we've got several down here. Let's thank the Lord for them. I invite the rest of you to stand. Let's close our service in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we know, as was spoken, there is a general call that goes to all of us to receive Christ, 
And Lord, there's also calls that we receive from you, from your word, that we're instructed to understand and follow and how you direct and lead us by your Holy Spirit to touch hearts and lives. And whether that's supporting a missions program here at Oakwood Bible Church or desiring to go to the table next to us at the restaurant to talk to the person there about Christ. Lord, we ask that you'd help us to listen, to hear what you have to say. And Lord, that we might be drawn closer to you that we might experience you in a fresh, perhaps even new way to understand who you are as our friend to such a degree that your light would shine through us. Lord, we can't create our own light. We have no light within ourselves. We only have you. And Lord, may that be the case for us as a congregation whether it's through our missions team, through all that we support around the world, or right here in our own backyard with our neighbor. So, Lord, move in us. Use us for your purposes to touch hearts and lives, ultimately for your glory, that more people would know you and you would be glorified all the more. So, Lord, thank you. Thank you for this time we could gather together. We pray all this in your son's wonderful and awesome name. And all God's people said... Amen. Thank you so much for coming. Have a great rest of your day.